Revelation 1, 9. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John of his experiences on the island of Patmos. He was exiled there by then Emperor Domitian. It was a Roman penal colony. It's, it's situation uh, situated about 32 miles off the coast of um, Ephesus, today called Kudasi in modern-day Turkey. We took a group there last year. Uh, the word itself, Revelation, means to unveil. And certainly, this is God's attempt and his plan, not attempt, but his plan to reveal to us the fullness of his son, the end of all things, the fulfillment of everything from Genesis to this book. It, it, is, it is his promises, the, the, the prophecies, and the fulfillment of his, his promises to the, to the nation of Israel, to his people, and for that matter, to the world as far as judgment. When I was going to school, a lot of times when we, at least in high school, we, we had books that in study hall, the teacher would say, if, if you need answers to your questions, you'll find them in the back of the book. And so I guess that's why this is here. That's why we're at the back of the book. It is designed to make sure that you know Jesus well, so that you can meet him as Lord and not have to stand before him one day as judge. In fact, you will hear the Lord saying repeatedly, he who has an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, listen to what God wants to tell you. So John is, is an old guy. He's in his 90s. I always say, the best maybe to remember, it was probably 96 AD. He was 96 years old. Uh, you may be off a year or two, but you'll get the general drift. But Paul, uh, John was so faithful to record what, what Jesus shows him here, uh, so much so that we are told in verse 3 and 2 and 3 that if you'll read it, if you'll hear it, and if you'll keep it, this book will bless you like no other. Well, last time we looked at John's uh, greeting to the churches from verses 4 through 8, we told you last week, and we'll reiterate it in the weeks to come, that, that when numerology is used, especially the number 7, God uses it to speak about fullness. When we get to chapter 2 next week and we start to go through those seven church letters that Jesus wrote, all of those churches uh, were in existence in the first century, so they were a message from the Lord to the church at large but they also represent the church in every generation. And prophetically, it seems to track from one to seven the way the church was and is as we head towards the coming again of the Lord. So just like you have seven primary colors or seven days of the week or seven notes in a scale, I think there is something to be said about the completeness of Jesus's words found in just these two chapters that we're going to start on beginning next week. By the way, uh, Jesus's direct words... Uh, to these churches in these letters are the only first-person recorded words of Jesus to the church found in the scriptures after the church is born. So this is really his word to you and I, directly so in terms of our, our gathering together as a church. So John ended last time with a blessing from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, from Jesus, the faithful witness, uh, and tonight we begin John's visions. Pretty cool vision tonight. John and Jesus meet face to face, which I think was harder on John than on Jesus. And we'll conclude chapter one tonight uh, in our, and, and we'll end with a, an outline that the Lord gives us for this book. So there's a divinely inspired outline in case you're having a hard time outlining the book. So let's start in verse nine where John said, I, John, 
both your brother and companion in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patience of Jesus Christ was on an island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice how John introduces himself as a brother and a companion in suffering and in patience in waiting for the Lord. Um, wherever you turn, at least in John's writings, and he'll use the same wording in, in chapter 21 of Revelation and chapter 22 as well. And it always seems to be a guy that is aware of his unworthiness. You know, he, he would always say he was the man that Jesus loved. He wouldn't really, you know, wear his accomplishments on his sleeve. It, it almost seems like he's really aware of the inadequacy in, if, of serving as God's chosen vessel. The, the, the idea of saying, I, John, which is very diminutive in the writing. Daniel started off in chapter 7 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 as well, his prophecy saying, I, Daniel. It really is a way to humble yourself almost, like, you know, I can't believe I'm here writing this down or seeing this for myself. And John was, was certainly one of the greatest men in the early church. He lived longer than all of the other apostles, had great privileges, great insights. He'd been there since the beginning. He was a leader who was close to Jesus, who had been walking with him when this was written about 60 years. So I don't know how long you've been saved, but just imagine, 60 years. He doesn't claim to be an apostle of note, though he could have. He's only a brother to the church. He's a companion to the church. He addresses us as equals in Christ, though he is the last surviving apostle for sure. Most of his generation had long since passed. The, the generation that was alive at the time were really about the third generation of, uh, of Christians, if you will. And John didn't see himself as much of a person in in terms of hierarchy, he just felt like he's just one of the guys, one of the one of the church, you know, one of the members. There, there certainly is no in the Bible no hierarchy uh, in the in the body. There are some people that somehow believe have the misconception that God plays favorites. He doesn't, or that he would listen to. We used to say, well, you know, maybe we could get Billy Graham to pray. Well, that's fine, but why don't you pray? Well, but it's Billy Graham. As if somehow the bells go off in heaven. Billy's calling. God could care less. He wants you to call. And so John immediately identifies himself with the audience. He, he sees himself as a saint uh, standing by grace. We're the same way. We're, we have the same Lord, the same needs. We're the same body. We have unique callings. Everybody is given something to do. Um, I've been given the job of being a pastor. It comes with lots of responsibilities, some dangers. <laughs> and from the Lord's standpoint, you know, greater condemnation if, you, if you're out there on your own because people listen and you don't want to stumble anyone. But we're all equal before the Lord, whatever God's called you to do. And I like John's just, you know, I'm John, I'm your brother. And I'm also a companion with you in the tribulations. <clears throat> the church... At the end of the first century, if you just if you've read anything at all about church history or even Roman history, you know that that the first century and at the end of it was horrendous. You know, Paul and the saints had faced the murderous kind of evil Nero for generations and or for years, I should say, and then Domitian came into power about 81 A.D. and he lasted almost to 96 or so. 
killed hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, the records are there. You can just go read them. And John and many others had paid a great price for serving Jesus. And John, as, as faithful as he was, as, as great of an apostle as he was, was not immune from the difficulty that the world laid upon him. And I think you should learn that. You know, as a Christian, that doesn't mean you're immune. You know, God will keep you, but in the world you have tribulation. You can just be of good cheer. He's overcome the world. So, you know, John, <laughs> you know, here's an old timer. He's been abandoned on an island. It is there in his abandonment, however, that these visions from the Lord are recorded. According to history, and we don't have much of it in terms of John's life afterwards, we do have some writings of early church fathers that say that John returned from this exile back to Ephesus after Domitian died, and he lived the rest of his life, and it wasn't very long, out there, um, and then was buried there in Ephesus, and Polycarp, who was one of his students, became the pastors of the church there. If you're going to follow the, the, the Lord, though, even just looking at the setting that we're starting with, um, any society is going to resist the gospel. There isn't any good society that you go, well, that was easy. <laughs> Never been that way. It brought death to Jesus at the hands of religious men. It might very well bring persecution to you. Jesus said to the disciples in Mark chapter 8, if you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow. And so John had done that. He had been faithful to run the race that was set before him. Um, he was beloved of the Lord, and yet he faced the wrath of man. Isn't that something? God loved him. Most folks hated him. The world didn't embrace him at all. When Paul wrote his last letter to Timothy before he was killed, he said from death row in Rome to Timothy, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, just know this, you're going to suffer persecution. Acts chapter 14, I think verse 22, it says that Paul went from church to church saying to the churches, through much tribulation, we're going to have to enter into the kingdom of God. So just so you get the picture, John is 90-some John is years old and he's stranded on some island because he loved Jesus. And he's not immune. And he wasn't very cocky. He just saw himself as part of the body. In fact, notice he says here in verse 9, I'm also a companion of those in the kingdom in patience waiting for Jesus. Now, the book of Revelation is going to give us details of, of Jesus' return to establish his rule publicly upon the earth. For now, tonight, Jesus is accepted and followed only in the hearts of those that are born again. He sets up his kingdom in our hearts. So there is an invisible kingdom. It, it's in you. The kingdom of God is within you, the Bible says. And so, uh, where is that? Colossians 1.13? It might be in your notes. I don't know. I'm guessing. If it isn't there, I, I didn't say it. Um, you have peace with the Lord, <clears throat> but turmoil in the world. So outwardly, the church was facing tremendous persecution, but spiritually, we are a part of the body that is patiently waiting for Jesus together. And we're hanging in here together, aren't we? Lord, come. You can't go to the world and find much comfort, but you can come to the church. We don't yet see the Lord ruling as God would intend. Man is in rebellion, and the fruit of it is showing. Corruption comes in every manner. <laughs> yet one day, righteousness will 
come and peace will come and there won't be any locked doors or police departments or defense budgets or hospitals. We'll just have the Lord here. That's coming. We wait for the Lord to come. That's what we are waiting for. And then Micah says in that day when the Lord comes that nations will, will beat their spears into pruning hooks and they won't raise up swords against one another and they won't learn war anymore. The Lord will be in charge. But John isn't exactly there yet. He just goes, I'm one of you guys waiting patiently through tribulation in God's kingdom with patience for the coming of the Lord. He's coming soon. For a thousand years, Jesus is going to ruin upon the earth. And even then, after that thousand years, the Bible says that Satan will be allowed to run through the world for a little bit and offer people another alternative. And surprisingly, some folks think that's a good idea, that the perfect rule of Jesus just isn't for them. It's hard to wait, though, isn't it? <clears throat> hard to occupy until the Lord comes. I'd love to have the Lord come back today. Be cool on... Inauguration day, we just leave. <laughs> leave all of the wickedness in the world behind. We need a righteous ruler. Jesus needs to come. But John was in turmoil as God's child. He was exiled for his faith. His peace was that he belonged to a church that was also waiting. And he realized that the world is no place for him. It wasn't going to be an easy place. So, we read that he was on the island of Patmos for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. By the way, one and the same things. The testimony of Jesus is the word of God. So John was, was, was suffering for his preaching and for his faith. He got stuck in the Aegean Sea on some small little island, 10 miles long, 6 miles wide. He had no idea in his 90s whether, whether he would survive it. Would he ever get out of there? He didn't know. But in this very small, restricted spot on the earth, God will allow John to penetrate the wild, or the wide, I should say, realms of heaven and beyond. He's going to get to see more than everybody on the, on the, on the land could have seen. History tells us that James was beheaded for his faith. Stephen, the non-apostle, was stoned to death for his testimony. Peter was uh, crucified upside down. Paul also was beheaded. All of the apostles, one after the other, died violently, except for John. He was still alive, and he was now pushing 100. Hippolytus, who is an early church writer, records, and we have no reason to doubt him, that they tried to boil John in hot oil as a punishment, but it didn't work. God prepared him and kept him for it. And so now he is exiled to this island to die, suffering here because he was a force in the world for preaching, right? He could have gotten away without this, just kept his mouth shut, didn't say anything. We can get away without the world turning on you, just don't say anything. Hide, if you will. But how are you going to get God's word out of hiding? I think John the Apostle had the original no-fear hat at 96 years old. And the thought that they could isolate him, they thought to negate him, but God had other plans. He couldn't just shut him up. Paul would write to the Philippians about all of his suffering. All of these things that have come out against us kind of contrary have turned out to be a furtherance of the Gospels. In other words, this has turned out for good. Just didn't look, on it like, look that way initially. 
Um, I think that would have been the case for John. What John is going to write here is exactly what we needed to finish it off, don't we? But yet, John didn't know that sitting here quietly by himself. It, it does interest me that um, much of the purposes of God are accomplished through difficulty. That at least if you, if you start to write out the situations that, that God works in, more often than not, it seems to, to be when things are really pressed in that God begins a great work. Here in exile, John is given the most extensive view of the future that God has ever revealed. And, and he gets it in the worst of places. This pandemic, which is now going to be a year old in March, has revealed a lot of people's hearts. I, I think it has shown where, where folks' confidences lay and where their fears are born. But God has done great things. Moses writes the Pentateuch in the wilderness. David pens many of the Psalms in the desert. Isaiah spent much of his time writing under death threats. So did Jeremiah. Peter wrote from death row, 2 Peter. So did Paul, 2 Timothy. Tribulation, patience, and kingdom seem to be put together a lot in the scriptures. But here's John with great perseverance of position. He knows who he is, waiting for God to come in peace and realizing though he's by himself, he's a part of God's people. So I want you to get a feel for that. So there's John. don't know how long he was there, but I do know he was there on, on his own to die. We read in verse 10 that it was, John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I was thinking about John. I think John could have been upset with God, claiming his treatment wasn't fair. I've been faithful for this long and here at the end of my life, I don't get to retire. I get to go camping on an island by myself. We find this old saint doing just the opposite though. He is worshiping God. He is, he is, his heart is open to God. He, he, he might be exiled in the body, but his heart is, is very much alive with the Lord, and he's, he's listening to what he has to say. He's in touch with God in the midst of his difficulty. He writes that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. By the way, the original was, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, really is the word became. And the implication is, and you can read it in other places, the word Ginomai means to become. So John's word to us, I think, says, I was worshiping the Lord, and then I, I was moved into that place of the Spirit. God began to just change my condition or my state. You, you can read John saying that several times in chapter 2, 17, chapter 21. I think we probably put them in your notes, the cross-references. But, but it all means the same thing. Ginomai means to change position. I was worshiping, and then you know, I got taken by the Lord into the Spirit. I, I, I was shown things uh, in a miraculous way, if you will. We do know that the Lord's Day in the New Testament was always Sunday. After the resurrection, the church met on the first day of the week. In fact, Sunday is always called the first day of the week in the Scriptures. Um, for us saints, I guess every day is the Lord's Day, but there is that day of worship. So... John is, is taken by the Lord into a place where he can see spiritual things. And it is God's work to open his eyes. You, you will find John in his first century mindset challenged to explain some of the things that he saw. Imagine giving John in, first, in the first century a computer and saying, what is that? 
Or, or an airplane. What is that? Or a car with four wheels. So John is relying upon the Lord's re revelations, and he will use many little phrases, um, comparative words to try to describe what he saw, similes and metaphors that you have to be careful of. When he says as or like, that's what he's trying to describe to you. The, the words I heard a voice, a loud voice behind me is, is mentioned 20 times in this book. 20 times I heard a voice behind me. I'm not sure what it means. I can't tell you that the Lord always likes to sneak up on you. But I do know that 20 times John begins by hearing the Lord from behind. I'll let you just deal with that. I have no idea. I just find it interesting. And if it troubles me, why shouldn't it just trouble you as well? I, I, I heard the Lord's voice behind me. Isn't that something? I heard a loud voice as, there's that simile word, that comparative word, as of a trumpet, as, right? Trumpets do precede in the Bible's big events. When the Lord presented himself to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai in, in Exodus 19, there's a trumpet that was sounding, the Lord's presence. When the year of Jubilee came, that 50th year, when when by Jewish law, all debts would be forgiven and set aside in, in number, uh, Leviticus 25. There was a trumpet that sounded to, to mark the event. Uh, the fall of Jericho was accompanied by trumpets. It reminds me a lot of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the Lord will descend with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. So um, John hears a trumpet. By the way, in chapter 4, and if you, if you have your Bible on your lap, in chapter 4, verse, let me see, in verse 1, uh, we read, After these things I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and that, and that first voice which I heard was like a trumpet. So God's voice, Jesus' voice, again sounded to him like a trumpet, except this time he said, Come up here, I'll show you the uh, greater many things that will uh, have to happen after these things. But in, in any event, that's, it's used a lot. John just, he compared the, the Lord speaking with a trumpet. It sounds piercing, it's loud, it, it, it gets attention, and, and certainly it did. Here's what John heard, verse 9, uh, 11. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write it in a book. Send it to the seven churches in Asia. Send it to Ephesus and Smyrna, to Pergamos and Thyatira, to Sardis and Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. <clears throat> As in verse 8, which we read last week, here Jesus proclaims himself first to be God. I'm God. <laughs> Hi, John, I'm God. I'm the first and the last, the A and the Z, the eternal nature. Everything starts and ends with me. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus' first declaration to John as he appears to him is, I'm Almighty God. And for you to understand that, that's going to be a little difficult because I'm everlasting and I ha inhabit eternity. I'm the Lord, without beginning, without end. Anyone that would say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, should start reading this book. The primest child that was born and the son that was given is the eternal God. Uh, Bible scholars sometimes write of Jesus, he is the uncaused first cause. Maybe that confuses you. I think it's a very wise statement, but it literally Isaiah says, you are my witnesses, 
my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. There is no one like me. It's the Lord Almighty. So first and foremost, what John heard Jesus say is, I'm Almighty God. Before you turn around, <laughs> that trumpet blaring in your ear, I'm Almighty God, and I've come to speak with you. In fact, I'm going to tell you some things I want you to write down in a book and send to the churches. Write them in a book. It, it's a, it is written in the present tense, which means what you are seeing, write it down. What you are hearing, write it down. Don't wait till it's all over with. Take notes, if you will, as you're going. And one of John's greatest contributions to our spiritual well-being is he's on the spot reporting and documenting everything that he sees along the way. In fact, sometimes he gets so caught up with what he sees that he has to be reminded by the Lord, hey, write this down. So I, I think a couple of times, just, hey, John, yeah, yeah. write it down. Yeah, write it down. Okay, I got it. You can almost get that feel of John being overwhelmed at the presence of Jesus. Send it to the seven churches. They are named there. Those seven churches are named by name and, and by letter in chapters two and three. It is the church age. Chapter four, verse one, will be the rapture of the church, and then we'll go from there. But we'll spend four and, chapter 4 and 5 in heaven with the church, actually. Um, so the church age, this is the, the word from Jesus to the church. And like I said to you, the, the seven letters sum up exactly what God wants to say to us as a church. The progression of the churches from A to Z, if you will, from 1 to 7, uh, show the church history, I think, through the ages, and we'll try to show you that as we go. So next week we'll look at the Ephesian church. So John hears a trumpet. He hears the claim of God. He hears the direction that he is given in the present tense. And then he does what I think all of us would do, verse 12. <clears throat> he turns around to see what, what the voice is that was speaking to him. And he turned around and he saw seven golden candlesticks. Now John is about to see the glory of God, <clears throat> the way the Lord is now. <laughs> Not the way he is in the Gospels, the way he is today. He will see what Moses was allowed to see for a bit. And Ezekiel was, Isaiah was, Daniel was, Paul was. John had a taste of it. He, he was with Peter and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. He hit the deck then. Verse 17, here. He's about to hit the deck again. Get ready, old timer. You may not have an easier time getting up. He's old now. But when he first looks, he sees seven golden candlesticks. Now, you probably have seen a menorah before. In the sanctuary on our communion table, we had a, a menorah. Menorah was made of uh, brass. It represented the, the one God had commanded to be put and lit in the uh, tabernacle in Exodus chapter 25. It was the only light that the priests could use to work in when they went into the holy place. We know that these seven candle stands or lamp stands represents the church. How do I know that? Because it says so in verse 20. And the seven, uh, the mystery of the seven stars, which you see in my right hand, and the seven candlesticks or lamp stands, the, the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches, and the seven lamp stands, which you see, are the seven churches. So the lamp stands, which John sees Jesus standing in their midst would suggest to us when it comes to the church, Jesus is in the midst of the church. The Lord is here tonight. 
As the church of, of, of his believers gather, the Lord is in the midst. It's good to know that, isn't it? And if you go, I wonder about those lampstands. Well, here, look, let the Bible interpret the Bible. Just go to verse 20. So when you read 100 Revelation commentaries and this clown says, well, the lampstands, anything, he goes off for 40 pages telling you what it is not. You can just go right to verse 20 and throw that book away. Because the Bible is good at helping you to interpret the Bible. Now, look, lampstands are not the source of light. They are holders of light. They in themselves can't produce it. The work of the church is to give the light of Jesus to a world sitting in darkness. That's our calling, right? The Lord is in our midst. He's the light. He's the light of the world. And yet he tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that we should be the light of the world like a city that is set on a hill that can't be hidden under a bushel so that it can light men's ways and it can show them so let men see your good work so they might glorify your Father in heaven. So we're, the, we're the, the place where Jesus' light is set out for everyone to see. We're not the light he is, but he is the light in us. So John goes, looks at the trumpet, <laughs> sees the church, sees the seven candlesticks, and is amazed immediately by what he sees. There is the church. We read in verse 13, and in the midst of those seven candlestands, lampstands, I, I'm, I keep referring it to the King James because that's how I grew up, uh, one like the Son of Man. He was, and then he begins to explain what he saw, but in the midst of the church stood Jesus. In the midst of the church stood Jesus. And he's guiding the church, he's empowering the church, he's, he's enlightening the church, he's revealing himself to the church. We gather together to worship him in the church. He is the reason for the church existing. And understand that when we come to church together tonight as a group, we are here to honor him. That's why we're here. I have a little plaque up here. You hear this? Hear that? It says, sir, we would see Jesus, John 12, 21. So that whatever and whoever stands up here should know we're not here to see them. We're here to know Jesus. He's the, the reason for the, the church gathering. And notice where the church is, where the believers are, there Jesus is in their very midst. Isn't that good to know? We should acknowledge him as we gather. It's a great reminder to us. He's the head of the church. Pastor's not the head of the church. Elders are not the head of the church. There are, unfortunately, churches that gather for years after Jesus is packed up and left because he's no longer honored. You'll find the same thing to be true in the Old Testament as the, at the temple where the Lord forsakes the temple because of the abominations that are being uh, taking place there. And, and yet the, the church, or, or I should say the temple worship, continued for years after the Lord left. No, he wants to be the center of attention in the church. The title Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. You'll find it more often in the Gospels than anywhere else. You'll find it constantly used in the book of Ezekiel, who is also given a similar vision. In fact, <clears throat> if you might write in your margin, Ezekiel chapter 1, you will go, if you go there and read what John is about to tell us here, Ezekiel saw for himself in 700 B.C. So the, the, the vision of Jesus is very consistent. You can check it out for yourself. So Jesus takes a human body, so he is aware of our struggles, says Hebrews. In, in 
Uh, in order of importance, if you read Daniel chapter 7, which is a prophecy written about 560 or so B.C., Daniel will, will tell us word for word that he had a vision in the night. He saw the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he went to the Ancient of Days, who brought him near before him, and he gave him an, a dominion and a glory and a kingdom and peoples and languages and nations that should serve him, and it would be an everlasting dominion that wouldn't pass away. His kingdom would never be destroyed. And Daniel, writing of the coming of Jesus to rule one day, uses the same title, the Son of Man. Very revealing, since that, that was a word that people didn't understand very well in the Old Testament, though when you get to the New Testament, it certainly begins to make much more sense. So God becoming man is at the heart of the gospel, right? If Jesus is not God, there's no salvation for you. And if he's not man, then he cannot be a substitute. So he is both, son given or son born, child given. So John, <laughs> on the Lord's day, in the spirit, hears a trumpet behind him declaring, I'm almighty God, I got something for you to write down for the churches. And he looks around and he sees the church represented by these seven lampstands and Jesus standing in the midst of it. And then he begins in chapter or verse 13 down through the next few verses to try to describe what he saw. And he's pretty, it's pretty remarkable what he writes. It is Jesus in all of his glory. But, but he has to use similes, so he uses the word as and like a lot to describe this awe-inspiring vision. I'll tell you one thing for sure. It's a different Jesus than you met in, the, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This isn't Jesus in his humanity and robes of humility, no longer enduring the hatred and the sins of man. This is Jesus, the priest and the judge and the king. And the vision of his greatness and his glory overwhelms the apostle completely, but this is the only description in the Bible that we have of what Jesus looks like now and what he will look like when he comes. The rest is man's imagination and best guessing. I've gone to places, because we're on the radio all over the country, where people hear my voice and say, Pastor Judd, it happened on a plane in the Philippines. It happened on the street of Tokyo. It happened in the city of uh, Jerusalem, and it freaks me out. <laughs> and then people will say this, you're not at all, you don't look at all like I thought you would. And I never take that as a compliment. <laughs> that can only be offensive, but I'm sure they mean well. But this is a compliment. This is the Lord in all of his glory, convening to us who he is. So verse 13, he saw one like the Son of Man standing in the middle of the church, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girdled about his chest with a golden band. Not a skirt of the peasant, but that full-length flowing robe of a wealthy, powerful royalty. It's the garment of the high priest, according to Leviticus 16, as Jesus is our great high priest. Isaiah saw it too. Do you remember when King Uzziah died there in chapter 6 of Isaiah? It says, in the year that he died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up, and his robe, or his train of his robe, that filled the temple. This was glorious, right? This, is, this, is, this says who he is. 
We're clothed in filthy rags. He's clothed in light and honor and life. Isaiah would write, righteousness is the belt of his loins, fearfulness the belt of his waist. This is our God. This is the Lord that we will stand before one day, dressed certainly in, in honor and royalty and position. His hair, sorry, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. Speaking of his purity, head and hair, uh, head and hair of white like wool, <laughs> it is the same description that Daniel has of the father in his vision in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Here it is the son. It is the same words used of the cleansing that God will bring to those of us who look to him. Look, the bottom line is Jesus is without sin and without spot and without blemish. He is, he is pure and he is holy and he's our God. So we read about that here. His eyes are like a flame of fire, piercing gaze. <laughs> I'm sure if you uh, do not have Jesus in your life, you're not going to want to look into his eyes on that day. I'm sure you're not going to be able to, to, to keep his gaze. And yet, the Bible says he, he sees everything. Sees right through you tonight. <laughs> fool me. Fool your neighbor. Can't fool him. He's the Lord. He knows. He knows it all. But notice here, he is coming to bring judgment. What he sees will make him very indignant and angry. Paul wrote to the Hebrews in chapter 12, that our God is a consuming fire. So this Jesus is ready to bring his own home, but go after those who have turned against him. We will read the same description of him in, in Revelation chapter 19. Just know this, tonight the Lord knows all about you. The comforting thing is, he loves you anyway. If we knew all about you, we probably wouldn't like you. I'm sure I wouldn't if I knew all about you. But I don't want you to know all about me either. But he does. And he loves us. He loves us so. John sees his eyes as just a, a flame of fire. Notice the word like. It's not like fire coming out of his eyeballs. If, 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 if he even has eyeballs, I don't know. But it is a comparative. Verse 15, his feet are like fine brass, Refined in a furnace. Whenever you read about the feet of the Lord, it is interesting that more often than not you will read about a march towards judgment. These are the feet that will land on the Mount of Olives and split it in two, according to Zechariah 14. Brass in the Bible is a metal of judgment. So when you look at the tabernacle in the Old Testament, everything that has to do with the sacrifice for sin is made of of brass. Everything that has to do with God's mercy and his grace is made of gold. So it, it's a brass that you can follow through the scriptures. You remember that that serpent of brass needed to be made there as the snakes came into the camp there in Numbers 21. It is that, that brass serpent that Jesus said, as it was lifted up in the wilderness, so I must be lifted up. He, he becomes the judgment for our sin. The brass serpent being a comparative, his feet bring judgment. We read in verse 15 that his uh, voice <clears throat> is like the sound <clears throat> of many waters. 
Try out yelling Niagara Falls. <laughs> the Lord might seem to be silent today, and we wonder where he is. And when, Lord, when are you going to move? But I'll tell you what, when he begins to speak, he's going to roar like many waterfalls. He's going to speak loudly and clearly, and everyone will hear him. Out of his mouth will go a sharp sword, we will read in Revelation 19, that will smite the nations in the fierceness of his anger. So, John just is amazed. And like I said, he continues to use words like like, as if, trying to make the comparisons. He had, verse 16, in his hand seven stars. He had in his hand seven stars. The right hand, by the way, is the hand of authority in the scriptures. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. It is from the right hand that Jesus will receive from the Father the title deed to the earth in Revelation chapter 5. It, is, it just speaks of one being in charge. So in the right hand, which will either bless or curse, there are seven stars. Who are the seven stars? Again, go back to verse 20. The seven stars in his hands are the seven angels of the seven churches. The word is achalos. Achalos is a word that means messenger. And it is translated more often than not the word messenger. Look in Luke uh, 7.24, I think. There's, there's a quote there. When the messengers of Jar departed is the word achalos. Uh, in chapter 2 and 3, every letter is addressed to the achalos, to the star, to the messenger, to the pastor or the leadership of the church. Because as the, the leadership goes, so the body goes. So these are... Words from Jesus to those in charge of churches, overseers, pastors, elders. Uh, a word from the Lord, he will hold them accountable for the spiritual well-being of his people. So God is watching and he holds them in his hand, which is a good thing to know and a terrifying thing to, to think about. He holds them in his right hand and out of his mouth there comes a sharp two-edged sword. Now, we know from the Bible that the, the sword is the word of God, right? In Hebrews chapter 4, we read the, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It can pierce to divide between the spirit and the heart of the sword and the spirit, between joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the intents and the thoughts of the heart. God's word can get where nothing else can, right? It can do surgery, and it can really accomplish much in the hearts of people. It can go where nothing else really can go and accomplish anything. If you look at that scripture um, that we just read to you there uh, about the Lord's word in, in chapter 4, it, it, the Greek word is makaria, and, and the word makaria is a dagger. It, it is a description of a hand knife that was used in close combat. It, 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 it is used to cut very precisely. It, it wasn't a big sword or anything, but that's not what the word is here. Here the word is romphaeo, and in Greek the word romphaeo means broadsword. It's the kind of thing that you, you hold in two hands, riding a horse, and you swing for the head. Very different words. So it is used five times in the book of Revelation, uh, uh, Revelation alone, and, and Jesus will come to apply fully his word to man's life. He has come to just deliver the killing blow, the, the judgment blow, not a little dagger which can separate, but, but one that'll just take you out. God's word, it'll be the final word that you hear. 
And so John sees that, a sharp two-edged sword in his hand. And then he said, his countenance, how did he look? He looked like the sun shining in its strength. How does that make you feel? He's, he's shining <laughs> like the sun. You can't look at the sun, and if you do, it just kind of it stays with you for a while, doesn't it? Unapproachable light. John saw Jesus that way on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says so in John, in Matthew 17. Uh, Paul met Jesus like that on the road to Damascus. He describes that before the king in Acts 26. So um, there are those who have seen the Lord who just, I can't look at him. You know, he's so bright. He's so amazing. So the church is a lamp holder. The pastors are the stars in his hand. But the light source for all of us is Christ. He's the one that wants to shine through our lives. Great! I just love the picture of the, the authority in the mind of the Lord. It, it, is good, um, it is good for you to go through this description. I know it's easy to read through because you want to get to the good parts or you think there are good parts. Um, but look, one day you're going to go to heaven and you want to show up like you know what you're talking about. So get a good look at Jesus here. So when you get there, you don't go, hey, dude, what's that? Who's that? What's that going on over there? No, you should know. In fact, later on, and when we get down the world, there's a song that they sing there in chapter four and in verse five, in chapter five, where the church sings to the Lord. You should probably learn that song, so you don't show up and go, "What are the words, man? Where is the TV?" So I don't know. Well, you should probably learn. You don't want to look like a pumpery, you know, country bumpkin. Is that right? Out in the big city for the first time, you want to be cool when you get there, right? So that's John's description of Jesus. His last impression. It was like the shining of the sun in the, in the fullness of its strength. You couldn't look at him, really. And we read in verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his hand upon me, his right hand, and he said to me, Don't be afraid. I am, like the, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. John's reaction, I guess, is understood. He hits the deck like a dead man. This from the apostle that had spent years of his life leaning on Jesus' chest, who, who, who had this kind of you know, emotional kind of and, and touchy-feeling relationship with the Lord. Where he, he, I just, he loves me, you know. But now he sees the Lord in his glory, and it terrifies even old-timer John. It's usually what happens. Go through the Bible and, and, and read about those who meet the Lord in his glory. And one thing you'll read about, in literally every verse, they fall on their face. Face plants are commonplace when man meets God. Abraham chapter 17 of, of uh, verse 3 of Genesis. And Abraham fell on his face as God began to speak to him. Manoah and his wife meet the Lord there in Judges 13, and they look to the Lord and it says they fell flat on their faces to the ground. Ezekiel chapter 3, I arose, I saw the glory of God standing there, and I fell on my face. <laughs> You're going to fall on your face. Just get ready. Put your hands out, get ready. You're not going to be able to stand. Oh, I can't know you. Look at poor John. Daniel in chapter 10, and the Lord came, and I fell on my face. 
And when I faced to the ground, I went to sleep. He, he passed out. Peter in the boat fell on his knees. Lord, get out of the boat. I'm a sinful man. You're the Lord. Matthew chapter 17, verse 9, when the disciples heard about these things, they fell on their face. So John falls on his face. This is the Lord we're talking about. He's the one that we serve. All righteous men all went down. Imagine what's going to happen when wicked people stand before God. These are his own, and they're on their faces. So many today in the church lack, I think, their understanding that this is who they're dealing with. We need some holy fear in our lives and some reverence for the Lord that we serve. He's an amazing God. You're on the side that's going to win. You're going to be delivered forevermore. There's no record of your sin in heaven because of Jesus. Your name's in the book. Your ticket has been punched. The debt has been paid. And this Lord who can look through you loves you. John must have had a good day this day. I know he's on his face. Maybe his nose hurt a little. But this is going to get better, although it's going to terrify him for, for, for weeks and months to come, the things that the Lord is going to show him. Notice that when John falls on his face, though, that Jesus, in his hand of power, immediately reaches out and says, you don't have to be afraid. He's a terror to the wicked, but not to his own. Why do we not have to fear him? Because he's the eternal one. He, he was dead. He's alive. He, he paid the price. He, he opened the door. He gave us access. He, he came so that we could have this meeting. He called this meeting. When did the Lord die? And then how did he die? Well, we know. And then he rose. And now in his hands are the keys of hell and of death. Hades being the graves, if, if you will, from the Old Testament. He's going to judge and deliver and carry out judgment for you and I, nothing to fear. There is nothing for you to be afraid of. Now, you die tonight, you're going right to be with him. You have Jesus in your life, there is nothing to fear. You don't have the Lord in your life, I would be terrified. In fact, I'd run somewhere real quick and pray, God, just save me before it's too late. What an amazing view, face to face with Jesus. Well, then the Lord says to John, when I guess he sat up, Write the things which you have seen, that would be what we just read, and the things which are, which are going to be chapters 2 and 3, the things which are the church age, and then I want you to write those things which will take place after this. After what? After the church age. So we're going to see chapter 2 and 3, God's word to the churches through the ages, but to every church in every generation, and then you're going to get to chapter 4, Verse 1, and you're going to read in Greek the words meta tauta, after these things. And then the church is going to be raptured. We're going to see in heaven the people of God worshiping God. And then we're going to go forward from there to that which is coming after the church age. So write down what you've seen, this glorious vision that we went over tonight. Then write the things which are going on right now, the church age, the age of grace. And then the day of the Lord will start when the church is removed. Uh, the things that happen after these things, meta, meta tauta, after these things. Verse 20 ends with the words, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my hand. And here's the Lord giving commentating, commentary, if you will, defining the terms. 
The stars you saw on my hand and the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the achalos of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, they are the very much the seven churches. So notice in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write this. And the word is messenger, achalos. And it is used more often than not that way. So I think as you know, people that worry about what is the symbolic language or illustrations in the book of uh, Revelation, 70% of all that we r- will run into will be defined in the book itself. So that'll get rid of 70% of your problems. Um, 25% of it is, is defined in the Old Testament prophecies in their use, which leaves you with 5% that we can wrestle over. Arm wrestle is what we're going to do over those. But I'll give you some things to, to struggle with. I think you'll have a lot of fun with them. I, like I said, I shouldn't be the one only struggling with them myself. So what a beautiful picture of the Lord, huh? He's coming to set up his kingdom of his rule. There will be no end. You just got to be sure you're ready to meet him. And here's a good way to practice. Just fall on your face before him now. Let him be the Lord now that you worship and praise and submit yourself to. I always worry when I see Christians coming in really late to service and they oh, I didn't miss nothing, it's just worship. <laughs> really? Is that all it is? Because it's certainly important to the Lord that we serve. He loves to be worshipped by us. Time's running out, man. Be sure you're right with God. Tonight we will start, or next week we'll start with the Ephesian church. And, and each, each church has a, a lesson for the church. The lesson from Ephesians is, Uh, check your motivation or check out your motivation. God is interested more in why you do what you do than what you do. Make sense? God is looking for the motive. And if your motive is right, your work will be less important. If your motive is wrong, no matter what you do, it won't do you any good. So that'll be our our study next week. We're only going to look at seven verses next week. The church that has left its first love. Father, thank you tonight for your word to us. We're excited to get into this book and dig in and and learn and and hear and read and be blessed, even as you promised to bless us. And so, Lord, as tonight as we um, go forward and and we we think about this vision of John, how amazing this must have been for this old guy. He just couldn't stand up. He couldn't take it. He couldn't look at you directly. It's like the sun shining in his eyes, and yet as he turned his head and looked in certain ways, he could... He could see that sword of your mouth and, the, and, the, and the, the gold belt around your waist and the flowing robes of the priests. And he began to understand the Lord who was the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who had dead and now was alive, who had a word for the, for the churches, who had a word for what comes after the church. And he gives to this old timer, write this down, John. Record every bit of it as I speak it to you. Just lay it out so that I might give it to my church so they could be ready for my coming. Glad you're here every Wednesday praying that you'll be able to make every week and really commit yourself to learning the heart of God through this book. It's going to be an amazing time. It's going to bless your, your socks off. You're going, to be, you're going to be so in love with Jesus by the time we're done. So wrapped up in his power and his love so confident in his God, in our God.
Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and rating our podcast. You can visit us on the web at MorningstarCC.org and on our YouTube channel at MorningstarCC. Again, that's at MorningstarCC. If you'd like to support this podcast, please look us up at Patreon.com slash MorningstarCC. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash MorningstarCC.